We're going to be reading a couple verses from Mark chapter 1 this morning. A couple of different processes led us to this specific text for this specific day. As Pastor Greg mentioned at the beginning of the service, this is Trinity Sunday. That's the Sunday after Pentecost. And so we're going to be thinking about the Trinity as part of our sermon this morning. And also in our evenings this summer, we're working through the Gospel of Mark. And as it worked out, this was the text that fell on this day. And it happens to be, happens to give us a picture of the Trinity. So we'll be reading from Mark chapter 1 from verse 9 to verse 11 this morning. This is God's word for us today. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We're going to work through this text on two levels this morning. First, we'll look at who Jesus is as the Son of God. And for that level, we'll use the image of a picture. And then we'll zoom out and we'll look at the whole Trinity. And for that level, we'll use the image of a game. On the first level, for our first point this morning, we're going to reflect a little bit on the reality that people are always making up their own pictures of Jesus. We're all always making up our own pictures of who Jesus is. If you ever look at children's Bible story books, it's interesting to see how they draw Jesus. Almost without exception, children's Bible story books that you buy here paint Jesus as a nice-looking white guy. He looks a lot like how we look. When we were in Africa, there were some children's Bible stories books that you could get there, and the Jesus there was black-skinned. He looked an awful lot like how the people who wrote those books look. If we don't think about it, Jesus often ends up looking an awful lot like us, an awful lot like how we think he should look. And that's true of the actual pictures we draw, but it's also true of the mental pictures we have of who Jesus is. When we lived in Africa, a lot of people were very happy to hear that Jesus would be their eternal savior, but if they had a problem today, they would go to the witch doctor. It was great that Jesus would help them out then, but for right now, they were going to do something else. Muslims will see Jesus as a great teacher, a wonderful prophet, a man to be honored, but just a man. Hindus will welcome Jesus as a god. That's wonderful. He can be the thousand and first god. He can fit in on the picture next to those other minor deities over there. A secular humanist will welcome Jesus with open arms and say, It's so wonderful that you've come as a good moral teacher, as someone who shows us the best of humanity. The average materialistic American, which often describes us more often than maybe we'd like, wants an economic Jesus who gives us what we want and who doesn't require too much in return. People everywhere want Jesus to fit their picture. And so often the picture we draw of Jesus is more about who we are than who Jesus actually is. All the pictures we make of Jesus bend and distort him. They cut some parts off. They get Jesus out of focus. But the thing of it is that we don't really get to define who Jesus is. This is not up to us. The Christian faith doesn't give us a blank canvas and tell us to paint any picture we like. The Bible defines for us who 
Jesus is. And in these verses that we read for this morning, God gives us the true picture of Jesus, and God reveals that Jesus is his son. Jesus is the son of God. In the text that we read for this morning, God commissions Jesus to do the work of redemption. But more than that, in this text, God confirms that Jesus himself is the son of God. In these verses at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is commissioned to do God's work, but he's also confirmed to be God himself. Jesus doesn't come as just another guy, just another person. He comes as God himself to do the work that God has set out to do. That is the true picture of Jesus. And God himself comes to us and gives us this picture. The whole Bible tells us this story. These verses show it in particular. But the whole Bible tells us this story that Jesus comes as God's son. That Jesus comes as the one who saves God's people. One of the driving questions, perhaps the greatest driving question of the gospel of Mark is who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? That's a fundamental question in the gospel of Mark and it is the most important question that we can ask in our lives. And the gospel of Mark answers that question by telling us Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the only hope. And if Mark is right in its answer to who Jesus is, then we face a choice. And that choice defines our lives. Either we serve Jesus as who the Bible presents him to be, or we don't. Either we serve Jesus, the Son of God, or we reject him. There is no middle ground. God is not open to being patronized or used. No half-truth will do. No picture we make up can ever capture this reality. We either accept and serve Jesus as who God says he is, or we reject him. And this morning, the gospel of Mark invites all of us to accept Jesus, to recognize him as our Savior, and to follow him. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper a little bit later in the service. And this is a symbolic meal. And as we eat this bread and drink this wine, one thing we're doing is acknowledging the truth about Jesus. As we partake of this supper, by the grace of God, we are reminded of who Jesus is and the sacrificial work he accomplished on our behalf. And we're also refreshed in the hope that we have that we do belong to Jesus and that we belong to to God. That's the picture we need today. But now let's zoom out. We looked at Jesus as the Son of God, but now if we step back and look at this passage again, we can see all three persons of the triune God working together. We see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together in this text. And as we see them here, and as we see them throughout Scripture, we see the Trinity always acting in self giving love. This passage gives us a picture of the Trinity. In this text, we see Jesus coming as the mighty one, as the one come to deliver God's people. And we see the Holy Spirit descending with power to inaugurate a new movement. And we see the Father from heaven claiming Jesus as his beloved son and saying he is well pleased with him. 
This is the Trinity, the triune God, setting out to redeem the world. And in this text, we hear an echo of creation. Back in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible opens with God. And God is there, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the unformed waters. And then God speaks. He sends out His Word, and creation comes into being. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together to begin creation. And now in this text, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together to begin this new phase of salvation history. The Spirit comes down with power. The Son takes on the work of redemption. And the Father speaks from heaven and sets the course of the divine work. And inasmuch as we can understand God, who is beyond our comprehension, this is how the Trinity has existed for all eternity. The three persons always work in perfect love, perfect joy, perfect unity. There is a mystery and also a fullness to the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are closer than we can understand. They work together in perfect unity, and their love and their joy in each other overflows among the three persons. And somehow these three are so united that they are one being. We as Christians don't believe in three gods who stand next to each other and work together towards some common end. And we don't believe in one God who puts on different masks, who takes different shapes at different times. We believe in three eternal persons united in one eternal being, in a life of joy and fellowship and love. Now, all our images, all of our images for this reality fall a bit short because there is nothing quite like it in created reality. But let me give you the image of a game to get at what the life of the Trinity is like. We had a game night at our house with some other young adults from church a few months ago, and we had, one, we had a lot of games where we were competing. We were playing against each other, and you learn some really interesting things about other people and also about yourself when you sit down and you compete against them, right? But we also played a game that was a cooperative game, not a competitive game, but a cooperative one. And in this game, either everybody won or everybody lost. And so if you saw a move that another player could make that would help them, you told them about it. If there was something you could do that would maybe set you back a little bit but would help the player next to you make a step forward, then you laid that card. You all work together. You make a plan. You work together. You say, hey, if we do this and this and this and this, then it'll come back to me and I can do this and we'll all move forward. And with each step forward, you all celebrate. With each step back, you all groan. And if you play the game right, you all win and you go home happy. And if you don't play the game right or it's a really hard game that no one can win, you all go home a little grumpy. Not that that actually, actually did happen. But anyway, now I recognize that this image of a game misses all kinds of things about the Trinity. There are all kinds of realities that this image doesn't express. So don't hear this as this is what the Trinity is like. Hear this as a tiny, tiny little picture, just a sliver of what the overflowing, joyful, self-giving life of the Trinity is like. It's cooperative, it's joyful, it's unified. Every move that one person makes is for the benefit and the good and the joy of the others. Every step is a step forward together. The Trinity always acts in self-giving love, and it is the most beautiful reality in existence. 
And the great project, or one of the great projects of God, is to draw us into that kind of fellowship, into that kind of life, into that kind of love. One of the great projects of the Trinity is to draw us into that kind of life, to bring us into that kind of game. In high school economics class, we had to play this game once, and it was kind of a complicated game, but basically it had 10 rounds, there were three people in each group, and you could make three choices, A, B, or C. And if all of you chose A, you all made a little bit of profit. If all of you chose B, you all broke even. If all of you chose C, you made a loss. But if different people made different choices, they might come out behind and you might come out ahead or vice versa. And the best scenario for you was to convince the other people to put down A and then put down C yourself. And with the rules of the game, they lost big and you won big. Basically, if you cooperated, everyone won. But if you could compete and you could get an edge, you could win big and make everybody else lose. You could compete or you could cooperate. And so you divide into these groups and then you have to decide how are you going to play the game And how is your group going to play the game? And you have to decide, how much do I actually like these other people in this group? How much do I actually trust these other people in this group? How much do I value my interests compared to theirs? And as you might expect, most of the groups started by agreeing to cooperate. Yeah, 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 we'll we'll all put A the whole time. Great, great. One thing I didn't mention before, you all hid your answer and wrote it down, and at the end of the round, you'd show everyone else what you put down, so you didn't have to tell people the truth. And everyone agreed, everyone in the whole class agreed to put A, and all the groups, most of the people didn't. They agreed to cooperate, and then they decided to compete. And then chaos happened. The next round, people who'd been honest the first time around tried to get back at everybody else. The third round, people who'd had two rounds worth of patience gave up and just started going for their own profit. And groups started getting nastier and nastier. My own group, every round, we'd negotiate, and then one of us would break out of the agreement. It got a little bit, a little bit unpleasant. And that was by design. By the end of the game, the teacher had everyone kind of add up how much they'd made. And there was one group, one group, and the teacher said this was the only time he'd ever seen this happen There was one group that actually had cooperated for the whole game. They actually handed their pieces of paper to the other members of the group and had them write in what they would do. And the whole group did A the whole time, and they all won. When we added up at the end of the game, everyone else in the class had a loss, and this group all had a huge profit. Most of the time, Most of the time, even in our best relationships, we're stuck in competition mode. We're stuck on thinking, how can I benefit myself? What can I get out of this relationship? How can I play the game so that what's best for me happens? And honestly, most of the time, if we have to choose between what's best for them and what's best for me, well, most of the time, we're going to choose what's best for me. That's just how we are. But that's not how God is. That's not what the life of the Trinity is like, and that's not the life that God intends to draw us into. In God, we see a life of cooperation, of joy, of complete trust.
And that's the kind of life that Jesus came, became one of us, suffered and died and rose again to draw us into that kind of life. That's what we were made for. One of the themes this week for our VBS is created by God, built for a purpose. One of the purposes that God made us for was to be drawn into this game of cooperation, joy, and trust that will go on forever and ever. If we belong to Jesus, we can expect that our eternity will consist of being drawn into this fellowship, into the joy of a game where everyone always works together, where harmony reigns, and where everyone wins. The Lord's Supper, it's a sign of that reality, and it sustains us toward that goal. Through this meal, God uses even this meal as a means of grace to draw us into His joy and into His love. Through this meal, the Lord draws us up into His presence. Through this meal, the Lord nourishes us spiritually and He works to transform us from competition mode to cooperation, fellowship, and communion with God and also with each other. The gospel of Mark in these verses that we read for today, it rips open the curtains of the universe and it shows us that Jesus is the Son of God. In this text, we have a true picture of Jesus. Come as the Son of God. Come to save the world. And the work of Jesus brings us into the life that God intends for us. As we grow in this life, we come to experience the presence of Christ through the power of the Spirit in the love of God the Father. And in this life, we move forward together. We join in the game. And in God's grace in this game, all of us, all the people who belong to God, all of us win the ultimate prize. All of us are drawn into the fellowship of God and we are able to glorify God and enjoy Him forever together. That is the hope we have. That is the joy that we celebrate together today.